Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And on February 18th, 2021, NASA celebrated upon receiving word that the Mars rover called Perseverance had touched down safely upon the Red Planet. And if you listened to Monday's episode, you heard me cover the basics of the rover, including all the instruments and tech that it's carrying. Today, I thought I would talk more about the journey to launching that rover and what it's been doing up on Mars since it touched down a couple of weeks ago. Now, when it comes to space missions, a lot of factors come into play. There's the tech, obviously. I mean, without the tech, we wouldn't be able to get to space or do anything useful once we're out there. But there's also money and politics, two factors that can actually make or break space missions. In fact, the whole purpose of the space race, when you really boil it down, was because of political pressures between the United States and the Soviet Union. Uh, We had a lot of benefits that came out of it that had nothing to do with politics, but the money would never have been there had it not been for that political pressure. Personally, I wish it were otherwise. I would love it if just the pursuit of knowledge was enough for us, but we live in the real world. NASA, or the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, is a U.S. federal government agency, and as such, it is particularly subject to the whims of politics and budget committees. And that means it can be really tough to make long-term plans, as changes in the government can really shake things up from one group of leaders to the next. This is no small matter. The person in charge of leading NASA gets that job through political appointment— The President of the United States appoints the nominee, who then must receive approval from the U.S. Senate. This administrator is both the head of NASA as well as the top advisor when it comes to matters involving space. Every four years in the United States, we have presidential elections. And when those elections lead to a change in which political party is holding the executive branch, that is, the president, well, that typically means we also will see a change in leadership at NASA. Since the agency's founding in the late 1950s, there have been 13 official administrators and another 11 acting administrators, meaning they were filling in the position while a new administration was in the process of choosing a successor. Oh, and uh, of those acting administrators, Alan Lovelace actually served as that role twice. So, Leadership at NASA has changed 24 times since the agency was founded in October 1958. If we were to average that out, it would mean that the head of the agency changes every, you know, 2.6 years or so. Now, if you've listened to Tech Stuff for a while, or if you've listened to a show I used to do with Ariel Kasten called Business on the Brink, You've heard stories about companies that were plagued with issues that either caused or contributed to a a sort of revolving door situation at the executive leadership level. And when you've got top leadership changing frequently, it can be difficult to maintain momentum or a long-term strategy. And when it comes to space, you you have to plan long-term because the amount of time it takes to conceive, develop, produce and execute a mission can span several years or even more than a decade. Long-term plans 
are hard, y'all. Many of NASA's long-term plans have focused on Mars, and I would say we're still firmly in the phase of learning about Mars itself. We know a lot about the planet already, but there are many questions that we still have. So let's do a quick rundown on stuff we already know about Mars. And first, let's get the obvious stuff out of the way. It's the fourth planet out from the sun, which makes Earth and Jupiter its next-door neighbors. Uh, it's smaller than Earth. Uh, the diameter of Mars is a bit more than half of Earth's diameter. The Earth has about 10 times the mass of Mars. This also means that the gravity on Mars is less than what you would experience here on Earth. On Mars, you would weigh about 38% of what you weigh here on Earth. Of course, your mass would remain the same. Mass doesn't change, but your weight would change. And we call it the red planet because it's red. So that, okay, that, that, that makes sense. And it's also a planet. So that also, I mean, that it tracks. And we know why it's red too. It's red because of the regolith on Mars. That's what we call the rocks and the loose soil on the surface. It happens to be rich with iron. And as we know, rust is the product of oxidation. So it's time for some chemistry. All right, so the simple formula is that you get iron, or Fe on the elemental table, and uh, you get an oxidizer. Here on Earth, the most common combination tends to be iron, water, and oxygen. Water is more like a catalyst in this case. Iron exposed just to oxygen does oxidize, but the process is fairly slow. Water speeds this up a lot, and if the water has a lot of electrolytes, which is not just what plants crave, then the process happens even faster. That's why iron exposed to salt water will rust pretty darn quickly. Now, does that mean the iron on Mars rusted in a similar way, perhaps due to torrential rainstorms? Well, maybe. That's one hypothesis. But there are other possibilities, such as solar radiation breaking down molecules like carbon dioxide into oxidants that rusted the iron over the course of millions of years. Or there might be several reasons combined that led to the oxidation process. But Mars's reddish color was one of the reasons scientists suspected that water is or was on the surface of the planet before we were able to actually verify. Oxidizing reactions can be either endothermic or exothermic. That means that depending upon the actual reactants, you might need to add heat to cause the oxidation process to start, or the process itself might release heat. So with iron oxidation, you're talking about an exothermic reaction, meaning it does generate heat. If you expose a very tiny speck of pure iron to an environment that has oxygen and maybe some water vapor, like, you know, our atmosphere does, well, that speck will oxidize very quickly and release more heat than can disperse through that tiny, tiny piece of iron. We're talking like itty bitty little flecks of iron. So you end up getting a super hot fleck of iron because the heat can't disperse quickly enough. And that ends up being a spark. Anyway, that's kind of getting off track. More to the point, the fact that Mars has rust on it tells us that iron and some sort of oxidizer have to be, or at least had to be present, and it brought up the possibility that the planet has, or had, water on it. This would be one of the facts that we were trying to establish for a long time with various observations and Mars missions, and we did eventually find ice on Mars. 
Mars is also very cold. The average temperature on Mars is minus 81 degrees Fahrenheit, or nearly minus 63 Celsius. And the atmosphere on Mars is primarily carbon dioxide. We would not be able to breathe there. It's a very thin atmosphere, too, so not, not a whole lot of it, and most of it's carbon dioxide. Mars has two moons, Deimos and Phobos, both discovered by astronomer Azef Hall in 1877. Hall had almost given up looking for moons around Mars, but his wife Angelina encouraged him to keep looking, and according to the story, he found both of them within that week. So I think we all owe Angelina credit for this as well. It's no surprise that the two moons were difficult to spot. They are two of the smallest moons in our solar system. Phobos is the larger of the two by a little bit, and it also orbits Mars at a really low altitude of 6,000 kilometers, or just 3,700 miles. Now, for comparison, our own moon around Earth is 384,000 kilometers, or 238,900 miles away. So Phobos is super close to Mars, and that's uh, one of the reasons why it's very hard to spot. There's not a whole lot of distance between Phobos and the planet it orbits, and it's very tiny, so picking it out in the 19th century was really hard to do. Deimos, while smaller, is also a bit further out in its orbit. And this also means that the two moons have vastly different cycles. Phobos orbits Mars three times per day, and Deimos takes about 30 hours to do a full circuit around Mars. Phobos's fate is also sealed. Every year, it gets a little bit closer to Mars because its orbit is decaying. And in time, and by in time I mean like... 50 million years or so, it will either collide with Mars, or it might break apart into itty-bitty pieces, and then Mars will get a ring. Which, come on, we all know Mars deserves a ring. Beyonce would agree with me. Both Phobos and Deimos always present the same face to Mars, which makes them kind of like our moon. You know, if you look up at the moon, you're always looking at the same face of the moon. And by the way, this is a good time to remind people that the phrase dark side of the moon doesn't mean that one side of the moon, either Earth's moon or Mars's moon, is always dark. There is a light side and a dark side of these moons, but the sides change because of the cycles. Just as Earth always has a side that is, you know, lit up and another side that's dark, but it's not like it stays that way all the time. That's why we have night and day. Now, all that being said, it's possible that future trips to Mars might use these moons as a forward base. For one thing, if you establish the base on the side of the moons that always face Mars, you've got the rest of the moon behind you blocking radiation from space, and the sun in particular, for most of the time. Which is a good thing, because as we all know, space is always trying to kill you. And cosmic radiation is one of the many weapons of choice, along with stuff like, you know, the lack of a breathable atmosphere and the effects of vacuums on humans and long-term effects of exposure to microgravity. I've done full episodes about how space is trying to kill you. I guess it's a good time to transition to some of the missions that various countries have launched to get more info on Mars. There's a lot more that we know about Mars. For example, it doesn't have tectonic plates the way Earth does. Uh, it has 
the largest volcanoes in the solar system, but none of them are active. They've all gone extinct millennia ago. It doesn't have a magnetic field the way the Earth does. That has lots of consequences for Mars, one of which is that the solar wind from the sun is gradually siphoning off Mars's atmosphere over, you know, millions of years. So there are other things we know, but let's let's talk about some of the missions we've sent to Mars to learn more about it. The first successful Mars mission was Mariner 4, which did a flyby of the planet in 1965. There had been other attempts that predated Mariner 4, but NASA's Mariner 4 was the first to actually make it. All the others had mission failures. A few years later, Mariner 6 and Mariner 7 followed suit, and then the former USSR launched its own successful orbiter spacecraft in 1971. The first spacecraft to land on Mars, you know, without actually crashing into it, was the Mars Pathfinder with the Sojourner rover, which launched in 1996 and landed in 1997. Sojourner remained in operation for less than 90 Earth days. There wouldn't be another successful landing on Mars until 2003. That's when NASA had its Mars Exploration Rover mission and launched a pair of rovers to the Red Planet. One was called Spirit, the other Opportunity. They launched a few weeks apart in the summer of 2003 and landed on Mars in January 2004 in very different locations on the planet. Both of these rovers made contact by using a parachute and then retro rockets and then massive airbags. So the landing was a bumpy one. Mars's atmosphere is thin, but it does exist, so parachutes are viable, presuming that whatever it is you're trying to land on Mars isn't too heavy, and they don't slow you down as much as they would on Earth because there's just not as much atmosphere to catch and slow you down. These rovers also stayed in service a very long time. Spirit gave up the ghost, pun intended, in 2010, but Opportunity remained active until 2018. The main purpose of these rovers was to look for signs of past water activity on the surface of Mars. While Spirit would get stuck in 2009 and finish out its mission as a stationary platform, kind of like a lander. Opportunity kept working until in 2018, it was clear that it was beyond reach and had expired. The NASA social team shared the message, my battery is low and it's getting dark. And frankly, a lot of people on the internet got very sad that this robot on Mars was going offline. By that time, people had sort of ascribed a kind of personality and life to this robot, and no small thanks to the NASA social team, and people got really caught up on how this robot was so far from home and all alone. And I'm sorry, I can't read my notes because something's in my eye. The spirit and opportunity were each doing science long after their initial planned missions, which was great, but Mars missions don't always go that way. The Phoenix lander, which wasn't a rover, but a stationary Mars science platform, launched on August 4th, 2007. It landed on Mars on May 25th, 2008. It also used a parachute and thrusters during landing, achieving a soft landing in the process, and it landed near the polar region of the northern part of Mars, and scientists knew that it was going to have a pretty short 
useful life, or at least was likely to, because as George R.R. Martin would say, winter is coming. The Phoenix lander operated until NASA lost contact with it in November 2008, essentially six months after it had landed. By that time, sun exposure on that part of Mars was very low, which meant the lander couldn't get enough energy for its solar panels in order to recharge its battery, but it did do a lot of science in those six months, examining the polar climate, the composition of the lower atmosphere on that part of Mars, and studying the history of water and ice on Mars. It might not have had a very long life like spirit or opportunity, but it did do a ton of work. Then we move up to 2011 with the launch of the Mars Science Laboratory, better known to the rest of us as the Curiosity rover. This one was much bigger than the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. It weighed in at more than a ton, at least on Earth, Martian gravity being about a third of Earth's gravity. And as I mentioned in the previous Perseverance episode, Curiosity required an up-to-that-point unique approach with a sky crane. So think of it as a platform that uses rockets to maintain a position above a specific point on Mars, kind of hovering above it, and then it lowers the rover, a jeep-sized rover, down to the ground below with cables. Perseverance would use a very similar method, but again, I covered that in the previous episode, so I'm not going to repeat it here because, well, chances are you've heard it already. In 2018, NASA launched the InSight lander, which touched down on Mars in November of that year. InSight is kind of like a Martian weather station. It monitors stuff like wind pressure and speed, temperature, and so on. But it's also measuring seismic activity on Mars, and it attempted to get a temperature reading of the planet's interior, but it turned out that the clumpy nature of Martian soil meant that the temperature probe wasn't able to get enough purchase to dig down in order to do the work. Mars is hard, y'all. Now when we come back, we'll talk more about the lead-up to Perseverance itself, but first, let's take a quick break. So as of this recording, there have been 49 attempts to send missions to Mars, whether a flyby spacecraft, an orbiter, a lander, or a rover. And some of the missions, to be fair, had multiple components. So out of all those missions, about half were outright failures, and some of the remaining were really only partial successes. There's never a guarantee that any one mission is going to achieve its goals. So when we factor all this in, that NASA's leadership changes pretty regularly, that if you miss a launch window to Mars, you have to wait two and a half years to try again, that even when things line up, you might have a 50% chance of success, you start to see how the odds are stacking up against you. And of course, there's also the matter of budget. Because NASA is a government agency, it has to appeal to Congress for its budget. And since 2010, Congress has granted NASA the equivalent of around half a percent of the total federal budget, or between 18 and $21 billion, depending on the year. Now, this isn't just a blank check. The administration at the White House gets a big say in where that money goes. 
When Barack Obama announced his administration's space policy, it really shook things up quite a bit over at NASA. For one thing, it removed all funding for the Constellation program, which had as its mission objectives the funding of vehicles that could launch crews to low Earth orbit, the moon, and ultimately to Mars. But it had gone over budget. It was underfunded, despite being over budget. In other words, It was going to be way more expensive than what anyone had anticipated, and there had been numerous delays. So after a thorough review of the program, uh, the White House decided to no longer fund it. This, by the way, remains a controversial decision. There were some within NASA who uh, adamantly disagreed with the decision. There were others who were saying that perhaps it was merited. Uh... I'd probably need to do a full episode about the Constellation Project at some point and really dive into all sides of that story. Anyway, back in 2016, the European Space Agency had to go it alone with a mission that had intended to be a joint effort between the ESA and NASA. And the reason NASA was no longer part of this dance was because of changes to NASA's budget. In general, around 2012, the White House budget request began to allocate less money to go toward unmanned missions to Mars and more money dedicated toward human exploration and commercial spaceflight. New goals included a mission that would ultimately send astronauts to an asteroid, something that still hasn't happened as of right now. Oh, and also some funding went toward the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, something else that hasn't happened yet. Uh, When the James Webb telescope was first proposed. The target launch was, uh, let me check my notes, 2007. But if all goes as planned, it will launch on Halloween of this year. So better late than never. As for that European mission, it was part of a program called ExoMars. The 2016 effort involved launching both an orbiter, which measures trace gases in Mars's atmosphere, and a lander called the Schiaparelli EDM. The orbiter entered into its planned orbit without issue. It is still orbiting Mars now. In fact, it even got a look at the Perseverance. But the lander crashed on Mars and did not survive. A second part of this program, originally scheduled for 2018, has since been pushed to 2022. And in NASA's absence, the Russian space program Roscosmos has stepped in to partner with the ESA. The budget cuts did not bode well for projects like Perseverance. NASA estimates that, all told, the cost of the Perseverance mission will be somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.7 to $2.9 billion. The majority of that cost went into the development of the spacecraft and the rover. That was $2.2 billion of the total. And the rest would cover the launch of the payload into space, which was around $250 million, and the cost of operating the mission for the projected length of service. Uh, The projected mission is to last two years, but keep in mind that other missions to Mars have had numerous extensions to their missions when conditions allowed it. Still, that cost is much lower than the development costs were, and the benefits of extending missions when feasible are unknown and thus incalculable, and they're usually pretty cool. So while we don't know how much it's going to cost in the long run, we also aren't really sure of what kind of amazing benefits we might see due to those missions. 
NASA began working on the Perseverance mission back in 2013, when less than $100 million of its budget went to the preliminary stages of defining mission objectives, which in turn informed engineers as to the types of tools and instruments that the rover would require to carry out its mission. For the following two years, the amount NASA spent on Perseverance hovered around the $100 million mark, but in 2016, things really kicked into gear. That's when the actual build phase for the project began, and from 2016 until last year, NASA would spend in excess of $300 million per year on the project, with the peak coming in 2018, with more than $500 million of NASA's budget going toward Perseverance. Now, while it's certainly an expensive endeavor, I don't want to give the impression that Perseverance stands out over all other NASA missions. Other solar system exploration missions, like the two Viking spacecraft, Cassini, and Perseverance's older but smaller sibling Curiosity, are all more expensive, especially when you adjust for inflation. If you don't adjust for inflation, then it doesn't look that way. But inflation's a thing, so we have to take that into account. And those aren't the only missions that NASA's done that are more expensive than Perseverance. Perseverance currently ranks as number seven in NASA's planetary exploration programs in terms of cost. And if you look at long-term projects with human spaceflight, Perseverance doesn't even really merit attention. The Apollo program, which sent multiple missions with astronauts to the moon, that cost around $200 billion when you adjust for inflation. Now that's not a big surprise, because keeping humans alive in space and bringing them back to Earth safely is really hard. In fact, it's, it's hard enough that, sadly, we have not always been successful doing it. But still, pursuing any expensive mission is a risk. With changes in leadership, you never know when the new suits are going to tell you to stop working on a project and shift funds around elsewhere. Perseverance managed to persevere, through the changes, even as we saw goals shift away from further missions to the moon under Obama and then back again under Trump. Now, the reason I lead with all this is because after all these changes, the pandemic threatened to mothball the Perseverance launch for a couple of years. If NASA had not come up with contingencies to deal with the dangers of COVID, the mission would have to wait, and that would have been a bummer. And then there's the danger that the NASA of the future wouldn't have the budget to follow through on the mission. And even with all the measures in place, the possibility of missing that window was very real. NASA had to push back the launch date a couple of times, and there was a real deadline that they had to hit. If Perseverance had not gotten off Earth by August 15, 2020, it would have had to sit around in the tool shed for a couple of years. Now, I don't actually think it would be in a tool shed, I'm just imagining Perseverance is kind of like, you know, a riding lawnmower. It also marked a major shift in priorities. Typically, when approaching a launch date, priority one has to do with making sure everything is in place for a successful launch. But with the pandemic, priority one shifted to the health and safety of all those working together to make this happen. And it required drastic changes, with some people working from home, like a lot of us have had to do, and others adopting additional safety measures in order to work on location. Matt Wallace, the deputy project manager of NASA's Mars Exploration Program, put it like this, quote, We called the effort Mars 2020 safe at work. 
The objective was to keep the team as safe or safer than they would be if they were not working. Putting a spacecraft together that's going to Mars and not making a mistake, it's hard no matter what. Trying to do it in the middle of the pandemic? It's a lot harder. End quote. But the team did do this, which made the rover's name of Perseverance all the more appropriate. And in fact, Perseverance has a small plate on the left side of its chassis that commemorates the efforts, as well as honoring healthcare workers around the world. The plate shows the Earth, complete with a launched spacecraft, sitting atop a sort of scepter, and wrapped around the handle is a single serpent. It's evocative of the Rod of Asclepius, associated with a Greek god of healing and medicine, whose name I most certainly mispronounced. Now, that's not the only plate that's mounted on the chassis of Perseverance. There's a plate made of titanium that has the name of the rover engraved upon it. There's a plate that shows the sun, the earth, and Mars on it, with the inscription 10,932,295 explorers on it. Attached to this plate are three silicon chips with 10.9 million names stenciled on them in incredibly tiny printing. Surrounding the sun are dashed rays of light on this plaque. Those dashed rays actually spell out a message in Morse code, and that message is, Eat at Joe's. Uh, no, I'm sorry, wait, wrong note, I'm sorry. It says, Explore as One. That's, that's far more inspirational. As pointed out to me on Twitter by Jim, I will spare sharing his Twitter handle just in case he doesn't want it publicized, the Perseverance also has a plate that shows the evolution of rovers sent to Mars, starting with the Sojourner from 1997 and leading up to Perseverance and Ingenuity as well. It looks a lot like one of those stick figure family stickers that you see on the backs of cars occasionally, where it's like the parents, the kids, the pets, that kind of thing. It's very cute. Now, when it comes to hidden messages, NASA can get a little playful. The Curiosity rover has wheels that lead a dot and dash pattern in the regolith as it passes over Mars. And yes, that's also Morse code. That message just reads out JPL. That stands for Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And Perseverance has another coded message included in the whole package. While landing, the rover took an image straight up at the open parachute that was slowing its descent, actually took video of it. And the parachute has bands of white and red on it. And before long, some clever folks sussed out that these were patterns that represented a message written in binary. When translated, the message says, Dare Mighty Things which is pretty cool. And in addition, the outermost ring of colors on the parachute appears to be Earth coordinates for the JPL. So if a Martian comes across this discarded parachute, they'll know where to send the return. As planned, the Perseverance touched down on Mars on February 18th, 2021. NASA captured a lot of data during entry, descent, and landing, or EDL as they say. Sensors in the spacecraft's heat shield measured temperatures and pressure changes, which will help future engineers have a better understanding of the conditions they need to take into account for future missions to Mars, including those that might have human astronauts aboard. 
The atmospheric readings will also give insight into future flying vehicles, and of course the Ingenuity helicopter will give us more information about this too. The moment the spacecraft deployed the parachute, the Perseverance camera system began to document the descent process. And you can watch the descent, which included a camera mounted below the spacecraft, so that you can see the landscape of Mars grow closer. You can watch as the jettisoned heat shield falls a long, long way down until it moves out of frame. So it's still falling when the camera angle has shifted enough where you can no longer see it. NASA's video of the descent really shows how incredible this whole process is, how technical it is. And you also get to hear NASA engineers react with joy at the announcement of each successful milestone during the landing process. It's a joyous experience, and I do recommend checking it out. The video is on YouTube. It's about three and a half minutes long, and it's called Perseverance Rover's Descent and Touchdown on Mars. The video also shows when the Terrain Relative Navigation System comes online. That's the system that allows the entry craft to identify a suitable landing spot for the rover. The thrusters on the entry vehicle then help maneuver the falling spacecraft toward that spot. Then the landing engines prime, and the back shell on the entry vehicle jettisons, and for a moment, the view of Mars in the video tilts in a way that might seem alarming, but in fact, that tilt represents the vehicle's move to get out of the way of the falling back shell to avoid any possible collision. Once at the right altitude, which is about 20 meters off the surface of Mars, the landing thrusters provide enough thrust to hover over the landing spot, and the sky crane begins to lower Perseverance to the surface, extending the cables slowly and setting the rover onto the regolith. This part of the video shows dust scattering beneath the rover because of the thrusters, until the camera on the rover is low enough that it's actually in the dust cloud. Then the view pretty much shifts to the sky crane above, which detaches and then flies off to avoid colliding with the rover, and you hear the jubilant Tango Delta, touchdown confirmed, and there was much rejoicing. When we come back, I'll talk about some of the incredible stuff Perseverance has already sent us, keeping in mind that we haven't really gotten started yet. But first, let's take another quick break. Perseverance landed in Jezero Crater. Now, during the planning phase of Perseverance, teams spent five years selecting the best spot for the rover to land in order to carry out its mission, which largely focuses on looking for evidence that Mars might have at one point hosted life in its distant past. To that end, NASA scientists wanted a spot that would be a strong candidate for having that kind of evidence. The Jezero Crater was once a lake, billions of years ago. NASA identified that the rim of this crater has organic carbonates in the minerals. Now here on Earth, carbonates are part of what makes up stuff like seashells, and those can last as fossils for billions of years. So while carbonates alone don't indicate that life was definitively present on Mars, they could represent one of the best chances we have of finding evidence of past life. Perseverance will examine these areas closely, and it will also take samples of material, storing them in metal tubes that can be left behind so that a later mission can retrieve those tubes and bring them back to Earth. And let me tell you, the idea of bringing back Martian soil here to Earth is something I find really exciting. 
The carbonates will give us more insight into the long-term history of Mars as well. Carbonates form through interactions between water and carbon dioxide. By examining the carbonates at the crater, scientists will learn more about how Mars changed from being a planet with water on it to kind of the desert landscape that it is today. The rim is where scientists have found evidence of the greatest concentration of carbonates in this particular crater, though it's unknown if the rim is the you know, so-called bathtub ring left behind by the ancient lake, or if it actually predates the lake itself, and it will take some time for us to learn more. When NASA was planning up this mission, the expectation was that it might be toward the end of the two-year mission before Perseverance is actually at the rim itself. Right now, Perseverance is kind of bulking up. It's charging its onboard batteries through the use of its solar panels. And not just its own batteries, Perseverance is also supplying juice to the helicopter Ingenuity's six off-the-shelf lithium-ion batteries. The helicopter, which is attached to the underside of Perseverance, has already phoned home. It will stay on Perseverance between 30 and 60 days, charging up gradually. Also attached to Perseverance is the base station for the helicopter, which will serve as a communications node between the rover and the helicopter later on. Everything so far is performing as expected. Now, the charging process is a slow one. The first big power-up gets Ingenuity's batteries up to 30% capacity. Then after a few days, the Perseverance can do a second charging session, thus getting the batteries up to 35%, and each week will be much the same, which is why it's going to be a little while before we know if helicopters can fly on Mars. But assuming all goes well, sometime this spring or maybe early summer, we should reach the point where the helicopter will detach from Perseverance and stand on its own, and then it will have a window of about 30 Martian days to conduct test flights. Assuming it gets off the ground and returns safely, it will be considered a monumental success. This is one of those high-risk, high-reward type experiments. We literally do not know if it's going to work. NASA plans to have up to five total test flights if it all works out, but that is a big if. For one thing, the helicopter has to survive long enough to try and fly in the first place, and that's no small shakes. Temperatures at the Jezero crater can dip down to about negative 90 Celsius, or minus 130 Fahrenheit. Some of that battery power won't be going to flying. Instead, it's going to be going to heating elements to keep everything warm enough so it doesn't freeze tight. Then there's the dust, which can cause damage, or at the very least, coat solar panels and make them far less efficient at gathering energy. The atmosphere on Mars is very thin, so to generate enough lift to get off the ground is a challenge. The helicopter device weighs just four pounds here on Earth. It's about two kilograms. Uh, I mean, it's always two kilograms because, again, that's mass, but you get the idea. The carbon fiber rotors, besides being very light, will rotate at an incredible rate, around 2,400 revolutions per minute. Now, a typical helicopter on Earth, like the vehicle that you would ride in, it rotates its rotors somewhere around 450 to 500 RPM on average, so 2400 is very fast. While we wait for Perseverance and Ingenuity to fill up their batteries, there are a few other things we can talk about so far. One is that Perseverance has taken some amazing panoramic shots of the crater already. 
If you've ever played with a panoramic photography app on your phone, you know that you typically line up the shot and then you slowly pan your phone so that the edges line up. And usually you have, you know, some sort of guide like little dots or something else to make you go through the process smoothly. And what's really happening is your phone is taking a series of photographs, one after the other, and then digitally stitches all of those together to create the panoramic view. The same thing is true with the cameras on the mast of Perseverance. Perseverance gave itself a couple of days to settle in on Mars, taking that first panoramic shot on February 20th with its navigation cameras, and then following that up with a better photo on the 21st. It rotated the mast, sort of like a periscope, and did so 360 degrees and captured high-definition photos with the Mastcam Z, which is a dual camera system that takes zoomable photographs. This second panoramic shot consists of 142 images that were all digitally stitched together. And among the various rocks and stones you can see is one the researchers have already nicknamed the Harbor Seal because, well, it kind of looks like a harbor seal. It's a darker color than the ground around it, and scientists hypothesize that the shape is due to erosion, some of which might have been relatively fast-acting. You know, something you could measure in the hundreds of thousands of years rather than the billions of years. In addition, the images picked up some pitted rocks that have piqued interest. The rocks could be volcanic, because as I said, Mars is home to the largest volcanoes in our solar system, though they haven't been active for millions of years. Or it's possible that these rocks are made of carbonate minerals. It will take time before Perseverance has the juice to wander over and get a closer look, or maybe even to gather samples. Future photographs will be sharper, according to the team, which is beyond cool. Much of the heavy work will take place later this year. One other thing Perseverance has already done is it got a sound recording from Mars. And sadly, while you cannot hear any David Bowie or anything, you can hear the rover's own systems and the sound of wind blowing on another planet, which is phenomenal when you think about it. And it sounds just like this. The work NASA does with Perseverance will give us a deeper understanding of Martian history. And what we learn will likely come in handy as we consider the possibility of sending astronauts to Mars in the future. There are so many engineering challenges for us to work out for all of that to come together, from protecting the crew from harmful radiation, to surviving the harsh temperatures of Mars, to figuring out how to produce oxygen, water, and food millions of miles from home. Oh, and then there's the whole, you know, getting folks back to Earth part. The challenges are not necessarily insurmountable, but they are daunting, and learning more about the planet will help scientists make the best preparations for a successful mission in the future. And I'm really excited to learn more about what Perseverance finds out. I always find space missions to be super cool and interesting, both because we're pushing back our ignorance bit by bit, learning more about the universe we live in, and also, in the long run, we often end up with technologies that evolve from things that we used in space applications, and so we all get to use space tech in some form or another. Uh, it may not look like space tech, but that's where it came from.
I think that's pretty cool. If you guys have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes, let me know. The best way to do so is to reach out on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 